Coming up, as Labour starts the search for a new leader, change is on the agenda. But for some candidates, it's not the party that needs to change. We'll look at who's come out on top in the early skirmishes. Plus, a big international test for Boris Johnson. But is he willing to stand up to Donald Trump? Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading the first podcast of 2020. You know, in the days after December's general election, I wondered if, perhaps, things might finally start to calm down. No more knife-edge votes in the Commons. Brexit now just a few weeks away. Maybe politics, maybe our public life will return to normal. Maybe it would even occasionally be a little boring. But here we are, just a week into the new year. The royal family's in meltdown and a former Home Secretary has popped up on ITV dressed as a singing pharaoh. This, apparently, is the normality to which we must all adjust. Alan Johnson, by the way, was once spoken of as one of the great leaders that Labour never had. Now he is an early departure from a shiny floor talent contest. A vacuous, pointless waste of energy ploughing on regardless of widespread public apathy. Which rather neatly brings us to Labour's leadership. Traditionally, after a defeat of historic proportions, a political party would take a long, hard look at itself, ask itself difficult questions, confront the need for painful change. Unless, of course, you are the Labour Party. In which case, one of the frontrunners to be your new leader will give the man who led them to this catastrophe 10 out of 10. And at least half of the candidates to succeed Jeremy Corbyn seem to think it's not them that need to change, it's the bloody voters. Well, let's bring in Robert Meakin at this stage. Robert, even the, the leadership candidates who acknowledge there is a need for change seem to be at a loss to explain what that change is or how, what they would actually do differently. I mean, not the policies. They seem to think the policies were fantastically popular on the doorsteps of the very people who then didn't vote Labour. It, it, it seems to be that what was holding back Corbynism was Jeremy Corbyn. And once you've got rid of him and once Brexit's retreated into the background, that you can just carry on with the project and those voters who turned against you a month ago will joyously turn to socialism. Brutally assessing what went wrong for the Labour Party at the general election is a hazardous business if you're a if you're a Labour leadership contender presently, because yes, we know obviously what the electorate thought at large, but we're talking about Labour Party members. Now there was a, a huge revolution inside the Labour Party, of course, in recent years, which seems now to be full of Corbynites. And therefore, of course, I think it would take a, a very brave uh, contender to say that the real reason why the Labour Party lost the general election was because of one Jeremy Corbyn. Six candidates have officially announced at this stage. Barry Gardner is apparently in a locked cupboard somewhere in Westminster, actively considering joining the race. He apparently, Robert, thinks that he could bring a bit of vitality to what, what, what some people in the Labour Party obviously think is a bit of a moribund campaign. Look, Barry Gardner was furiously loyal to Jeremy Corbyn. If you wanted a Labour attack dog to go on television and stick up for Jeremy Corbyn and lay into anybody who criticised him, be it a politician from another party or an interviewer with the temerity to question the project, Barry Gardner's your man. 
is he necessarily the man to lead the Labour Party out of this crisis? It'd be all too easy you know, to uh, to laugh about uh, Barry Gardner as a potential Labour leader. And I have to admit, I have been laughing, but I have been stung severely before and I have learnt my lesson. Uh, I, I remember chuckling about Jeremy Corbyn a few years ago. So I, I think I'd be very naive and arrogant to be altogether dismissive of Barry's candidature. But uh, I have to say, I would struggle to see him as the, the bright way forward. But I would enjoy his his his, uh, his appearances at the dispatch box inevitably. Oh, Lord knows it will be fun. He's an excellent performer. Oh, my goodness, yes. I'm just not sure that he's necessarily the answer to the problem. The, the, the issue for Labour is how many of the candidates are the answer to Labour's problem. Because at the moment, two of the candidates seem to be far ahead of the rest. Sakir Starmer and Rebecca Long-Bailey. Indeed, Barry Gardner's name has been mentioned because people on the left of the Labour Party seem rather disenchanted with how the Rebecca Long-Bailey campaign has gone so far. She was certainly late in, in coming to the party, stayed silent for weeks after the election. When she did get round to speaking, she was full of praise for the manifesto that had just been emphatically rejected, that other candidates are saying was filled with fantasy policies. She was full of praise for Jeremy Corbyn, 10 out of 10, she said. I mean, God, what would she have given him if they'd won the bloody thing? And then says, I'm not the continuity candidate, but she's unable to say how she differs from Jeremy Corbyn. She is stuck between a rock and a hard place with that, because obviously she is closely aligned to... Um Jeremy Corbyn. No, she hasn't got off to as uh, an effective start as I as I imagine. To be honest, I thought that she she may have been a little more convincing at this stage. But I think we probably have to remember that. Yes, I, I know we'll get on to Keir Starmer, but yeah, he he's the obvious front runner at the moment. We are talking about Parliament overall. And obviously we're talking about the the, the mainstream uh, media as well. I've been talking up Keir Starmer. There is that crucial detail again of the hard left majority who are who make up the Labour membership. And I, I'm guessing, obviously, if you're a Rebecca Long-Bailey fan right now, you're thinking, OK, Keir Starmer might be getting all the favourable headlines. There might be plenty of MPs ready to back him. But when it comes down to the real battle, we'll see how it goes with, within the nuts and bolts of the Labour Party. Is there is there enough support there potentially for her to get together over the line? But as you say, she can't, she can hardly now stand up and say, you know what, I never really rated that Jeremy Corbyn. There were many things I disagreed with, but I held my tongue. She'd be, she'd be laughed out of the place. So it's a tricky one for her, but we'll just see if she can, if she can build up any momentum, if you excuse the pun. Over the over the coming days and weeks, you know, one of the problems I think she's had is that Keir Starmer's campaigning far to the left of where many people thought he would. The, the video he used to launch his campaign was a very slickly put together reminder of the fact that actually he's been actively involved in solidly socialist causes, either as a politician or as a lawyer, you know, for decades. He, he's, he's been up in court representing the miners. You know, he, he is not the Blairite Johnny come lately that a lot of people, perhaps on the sort of Corbynite side of the Labour Party, view him as. And I think that the, that the fact that he said they shouldn't be changing their principles, all of this stuff, that has surprised, I think, quite a lot of people. Now, look, the assumption has always been that even if Keir Starmer campaigned from the left, which is where he needs to be because of the makeup of the Labour Party membership, that he would then lead the party to the centre. Now, maybe we've got that wrong. Maybe we've got him wrong all along. Possibly. I I, I think it's smart politics on his part. He's clearly sort of... Because the caricature of, of Starmer before is obviously the, the wealthy North London knight of the realm, the you know, metropolitan 
type. And of course, his, his enemies have, have, have tried to use that against him. He's obviously telling his own backstory from, from childhood, which, of course, is actually is rather different. He seems to have done that rather effectively so far. I think he's also, even though he is pitching himself more to the left than I, I think he probably is presently. I think there's probably a sense in Labour. When you've lost every general election uh, since 2005, there does come that point where you think, yeah, my God, are we ever going to get get round to winning again? And out of the, the present candidate, you, you could be forgiven for imagining that Starmer might just connect with the much fabled Middle England more than plenty of the others currently in the running. And maybe, you know, it, it could be a case that, you know, people are actually just looking for an old fashioned leader again, someone who looks like they can cut the mustard, someone who looks like they can connect from beyond just the Labour ranks. Now, I may be being very naive, judging by the Labour Party's history in recent times, which is very good about talking to itself and telling itself how well it's doing. But at the moment, Starmer seems to be benefiting from that to a degree. The candidates only have until uh, Monday to tie up the necessary nominations from MPs and MEPs to get on the ballot paper. Uh, to get on the ballot you need at least 22 MPs or MEPs to support you. You also need to tie up the support of 33 constituency Labour parties which is 5% of the total number or three affiliated unions who between them represent at least 5% of affiliated members. It's a slightly different bar to last time. Now of course a candidate of the left or Rebecca Long-Bailey or a, a Clive Lewis or her Barry Gardner, why not, could tie up so many constituency parties, so many affiliated unions, that actually there aren't enough for other candidates to get on. So just because there are six candidates now doesn't mean that there will be six on the ballot paper, because it all depends on how it it shakes out. I would still expect, absolutely, though, to see uh, Lisa Nandy get through. And I think she's been a real sort of surprise package so far. On paper, Jeremy Corbyn's fans should absolutely hate her. And she criticised Corbyn. She criticised the Brexit stance. She backed Owen Smith when he stood for leader. But she is the one who is being painfully honest, who is confronting the Labour Party with the reality of the situation they face. There was a hustings for MPs this week. And she said to them, if we don't change course, we will die and we will deserve to. Now, that message will go down easier with MPs than it will with the party membership, who honestly think it's the voters who got it wrong and not the party. But that's the message they need to hear. Yeah, I, I agree. I think she's 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 been impressive um, to date. She she seemed you know calm, reasoned, and as you say, and brutally honest at times. I, I noticed you know during the uh, you know the latest international crisis. I'm sure we're going to touch on. I thought the way she handled herself on the airwaves then was 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 very reassuring, certainly compared to how the current Labour leader would handle it. So yeah, it's it's been a good start for her, and she 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 should be feeling reasonably optimistic at this stage because I think she's going to have a good campaign. I'm going to do something dangerous here. Assuming that we end up with Rebecca Long-Bailey, Keir Starber, you know, uh, far out in, in advance, I think there's an outside possibility Lisa Nandy could end up winning because the way this vote works is it's on um, single transferable votes. So you rank the candidates in order of preference, you know, one, two, three, four. Now, if Lisa Nandy ends up being the second choice of supporters of Keir Starmer, Rebecca Long-Bailey... If one of them ends up falling out, she could actually pick up enough votes at the, at the end to kind of overtake the other and win, kind of the way Ed Miliband did by soaking up all of the union votes when he was running for leader. There's, there's, a, there's a possibility that she picks up so many second preference votes from so many other candidate supporters that she actually ends up winning. 
Yeah, and it, and it's the I know we've spoken about this before the old fashioned curse of the of the front runner, which you know, used to affect Tory candidates and and of course has affected uh, Labour leadership hopefuls before. But I look forward, Paul, to this being played at the end of the year when we discuss our our famous skills for punditry. And maybe this time you'll be able to say I told you so because we'll be talking about leader of the opposition, Lisa Nandy. No, let's 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 start a list. Hang on a minute. January, Paul suggests Lisa Nandy will be Labour leader. There we go. That won't come back to haunt me. Say that clearly again now so you can replay the clip. And can I just say, Paul, just in case you need it, Paul, I heartily agree. That's what I think too. Maybe we could just insert that later on. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think we're just going to claim credit for everything, whether right or wrong. Um, this could be very embarrassing for Emily Thornbury, who is running from a position of having been a senior figure in the Labour Party for many years and just disappeared to the curb quite quickly. You can never be sure how these things catch fire or, or not in the case of Emily Thornbury, it seems. And she just doesn't seem to have um, too many friends currently in the in the immediate Labour hierarchy, there seems to be little enthusiasm for her. I mean, I, I think she somehow managed to be on on the outside of the the Corbynite inner circle, but also on the outside of other parts of the Labour Party as well. And she seems to be, I say, a rather isolated figure presently, however fairly or unfairly. So unless there's a you know a rather dramatic uh, a turn of events right now, it, it, it's hard to imagine her you know progressing. Jess Phillips didn't get off to the best start when she went on television and suggested that if she was Labour leader, the party could end up campaigning to rejoin the European Union. I mean, even died in the wall remainers like Keir Starmer have been saying, look, that debate's over now, Brexit's happening and, and we have to move on from it. Now, she backtracked very quickly, you know, within 24 hours. But that was a big misstep, wasn't it? Yeah, I'd... I get. I mean, I, I have a lot of time for her in mean, terms of watching her as a, a performer. Uh, obviously, she's a, a straight-talking, entertaining, engaging character. I think she possibly enjoys the hype a bit sometimes about herself. I think maybe she has uh, been a bit of a moth to the flame in that regard. Again, I, I don't. I don't know if she'll she'll have necessarily have the support to uh, get that much further down the line, but. You say it's been it's been a so-so start, I would say, for Jess Phillips so far. Of course, it doesn't mean that some of those candidates who don't actually make it to the top job won't end up in the shadow cabinet as a consequence of raising their profile. And, and, and Jess Phillips strikes me as someone who, you know, probably ought to have a shadow cabinet job. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about Lisa Nandy, you know, some, someone like that. Surely whatever happens, say for argument's sake, we're talking about Keir Starmer being the next uh, Labour leader. Then the likes of Lisa Nandy and the likes of Jess Phillips surely have to be brought back in as big hitters on the front bench because it's desperately lacked them of late. So here we are, six months into the Boris Johnson premiership and already a major foreign test for the Prime Minister. It's also a big test of Boris Johnson's vision for Britain's role on the world stage after Brexit, even though it hasn't happened. I am talking, of course, about the events in Iran, uh, the killing of the senior Iranian general in a US drone strike, which triggered Iran firing missiles at Iraqi bases where US troops were present. It's pretty much unprecedented for the United States to do something like this without warning the UK, a country that, A, is meant to be a significant military ally, B, a country that has hundreds of troops on the ground in Iraq potentially in danger as a consequence of these actions. And perhaps, Robert, a little galling 
for British ministers, for the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, to go on the telly and complain that the UK wasn't giving them full-throated support for this targeted assassination that they knew nothing about. I did hear uh, uh, George Osborne, remember him, uh, suggesting earlier in the week that actually the British government hadn't known in advance about the the elimination of uh, bin Laden by uh, President Obama a few years ago. So maybe the the US does have form when it comes to acting in such a high-handed fashion. Look, it's always going to be very easy to then have a go at the British Prime Minister and say, you look weak, you should step up, you should you should say something more you know, critical of the president. I think he was put in a very difficult position and, and I think he's just had to hedge his bets in a fairly predictable way, particularly at this time in um, in Britain's political history when all, all manner of things are changing. I, I don't think a, a yet another spat with Washington is what he particularly needs, but it's illustrative of just how this current president behaves. Obviously, he, he will just act go rogue, to put it politely. And, I, and I, I'm sure the British Foreign Office has is, is long resigned to it. An interesting test, too, of how Boris Johnson's going to run his government, because it took him three days to respond publicly to this before he, he said anything. And he left it very much to the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary to handle this. Now, look, we have been told in the past that he's a bit of a hands-off leader, that he was more of a sort of chief executive when he was mayor of London, that he leaves it to other people to do these things. And we certainly know that he wasn't, let's put it fairly, a particularly effective foreign secretary during his time in that job. And you mention that idea of whether or not you stand up to the United States on this. I mean, this issue more than any is really tricky for Boris Johnson, because on the one hand, Britain is still standing with France and Germany and the other signatories to the nuclear deal with Iran that Donald Trump has basically ordered all of those countries to walk away from because he has. At the same time, Britain needs a decent relationship with the US because we're about to leave the European Union. But it can't be a relationship of equals. But do you want a relationship in which you have an independent voice of your own? Or do you want to look like, to use a phrase so beloved of Brexiteers, a vassal state of the US? If we go on the basis that, uh, you know, well, Trump obviously is president for a good few months yet. And, you know, good God, it might be for a few more years yet. There's every chance that actually I think Boris Johnson, being the sort of character he is, is going to have you know, run-ins with the current president in the coming months, just by, just by the nature of things, by the nature of the characters. Boris isn't always going to hold his tongue. He's just not the type. He's incapable of it. Even if it gets brief, there's been some sort of row. There's, there could easily be a locking of horns at some stage. I think you're looking at a British prime minister right now who's just had the most bonkers 2019 who has won big at a general election, is feeling rather comfortable and pleased with himself and right now isn't going to, to strain at the bit to start having a feud with the leader of the most powerful country in the world, our most powerful ally, and also doesn't feel the need to be seen on screen every 10 minutes justifying himself, congratulating someone for that or criticising someone for something else. He doesn't need to, is the brutal truth presently. He's beginning a new premiership. He's in a... a, a Fantastic position if you're a Boris fan right now. And he, so he doesn't he doesn't need to reach out in the way that perhaps he might have done when he desperately needed all those votes a few weeks back. You know, a question that he's been quite reluctant to confront and others in the government have been reluctant to talk about is whether this strike was legal or not. Dominic Raab, for example, went out to, the, to Washington and had meetings with Pompeo and said, look, the US has a right to defend itself. The US said it had 
intelligence to suggest that Soleimani was behind an, an attack that was imminent. Donald Trump was talking about how he should have been, I think the word he used was terminated. That is not how you are supposed to do these things. And the danger is that you change the rules of engagement in dealing with what you would view as rogue states, rogue actors. Now, obviously, Jeremy Corbyn has taken that line and has obviously been criticised as, oh, yes, but you're always popping up on Iranian TV, aren't you? As a surprise, the member for Tehran and all that, which is, he is the worst person to ask these questions. But no more establishment of figure than the former head of the UK military, David Richards, was saying a few days ago, look, if we're now saying it's okay to launch a targeted drone strike against a senior member of the regime of another country when they're in a third nation, why would it be less okay for those nations to decide it was appropriate to target our military leaders in a third nation or our political leaders in the same way? If you're going to start saying, well, here, you know, it, it's time to start taking out uh, senior members of, of hostile countries. Again, where does that end? You know, you'd, there'd be an argument if you're going to go down that uh, that that sort of line. There'd be all manner of people being taken out across the globe uh, presently. I, like you, probably grew up probably with a rather quaint idea about international law and how the international community protected all manner of things before any before any of these sort of decisions were made. Well, that that's that went up in flames years ago, as we well know, and and, and there's no way. That such a state of affairs seems to be coming back. America does now act independently and it's then for the others to decide whether they want to follow. We may not like it, we may not approve of it, but let's be frank, that it's, it's, not, it's not just happened now. This has been built, this has been going on for some time. Now, Dominic Cummings has probably had a very busy few days working his way through all the emails from misfits and weirdos people who he apparently is desperate to bring into Downing Street. It's a laudable aim to uh, shake up the government, to speed up the civil service a bit. There is a, a snail's pace of movement and a, a tolerance of failure and poor performance that runs through a lot of government departments. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But the actions, Robert, of, of Boris Johnson's main advisor were a bit weird, weren't they? This massive rambling blog which then it turns out was a job advert. Would you like to come and work for the UK government? You know, drop me a line at this anonymous Gmail address and tell me how weird you are. Are you as weird as me? Yeah, exactly. It's that sort of Dominic Cummings rule breaker. Eccentric stuff. But it, it, it comes to a place, if you're, if you're Dominic Cummings, Cummings just has that view of of, Danish, of of that political establishment as something that needs uprooting because such people are probably throughout government are not Dominic Cummings type of people at all. He he considers them as probably the, the metropolitan, pro-remain, establishment cautious types who, who, who he absolutely loathes. Now he's, he's in the most powerful position he's ever going to be in his life and he's, he wants to make it count. So he wants to find people... Uh, not necessarily all those just dastardly London types, people from across the country who he considers, you know, left field thinkers or the rest of it, who can come in and shake things up. Now, whether he really pulls that off is another matter, but it's been certainly entertaining watching him try. Well, of course, it's been pointed out that Dominic Cummings isn't actually in charge of Whitehall recruitment. He doesn't get to just draw up a list of people and say, bring in these oddballs. I want these oddballs in my office. Stat. He doesn't actually get to do that. If you read the full terrifying text of his insane sounding blog 
you know, it comes across that either he's some sort of misunderstood genius or an unhinged, deranged maniac. I'll leave it to you to decide which side of the fence you think he is on. He quotes a bunch of really obscure research papers and books and other documents. And it struck me that he does that in the same way that a 17-year-old wanders around in a Ramones T-shirt. They do it because they think it tells other people that they're edgy and different and cool. Of course, usually that 17-year-old can't name a single Ramones song because they've never actually listened to it. Now, look, I don't know. Maybe Dominic Cummings has genuinely read all of this stuff. But usually geniuses tend not to walk around central London literally with their arse hanging out of their trousers, which he did this week. Yes, that was a particularly unfortunate look for a middle-aged man. Uh, apparently, those people who've known him for years actually suggest he's smartened up considerably in recent years. So God knows what he was offering uh, a, f- a few years ago. He's clearly in his element right now where I think he can indulge himself in all manner of ways. I'm not talking about his bottom hanging out of his jeans. I mean, more generally with his, you know, looking looking for the, the various oddballs and eccentrics he wants to bring into Downing Street. At a time when we've just won the general election, where he's being credited rightly or wrongly for being a big part of that he can call the shots and he can come up with some of his more supposedly madcap ideas and people inside Downing Street will tolerate him or won't be in a position to stop him because he's he's, he's had such a great run of it recently I mean to be honest I can entirely understand why Prince Harry is so desperately clawing for the exit though I am looking forward to him demonstrating his newfound financial independence by returning the two and a half million quid we've just spent doing up his house for him. And frankly, who wouldn't rather make a fool of themselves on a TV talent show than waste their time in the House of Commons? I mean, at least a singing pharaoh carries a tiny shred of credibility. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, don't forget, there's always more on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Party Games Pod, And you can listen back to all the past episodes and even see the odd video at partygamespodcast.com. For now, though, thank you to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.